0: I'd like us to turn once again to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 15 reading at the beginning of the chapter now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them So he told them, not just this parable, but these parables. So he told them these parables. I might have mentioned it before, but it's worth repeating. The Lord had two (coughs) ideas in mind when he related these parables. One was to the scribes and Pharisees as a warning. Warning about the lives they were leading, about the way that they judged hypocritically, about their their own spiritual lives and how they were not really on the path to a saved eternity. And he also spoke to those who were his followers those who were seeking the way to eternal life. And to them he was giving instruction as to how they should live for God's glory. And so we have these two aspects in in almost all of the Lord's parables. Warning on the one side to those who were hypocrites and those who were scribes and Pharisees, and encouragement and uh, educating their minds, re aligning their minds into the true path of righteousness. If you think back to the Sermon of the Mount, he said, You have heard it said of all time. He says, Well put that away. What you've been hearing there are the teachings of those who have raised their their laws and their statutes for their own glory and for the benefit of mankind. But I say unto you and so throughout that Sermon of the Mount he has this contrast what is the benefit of mankind and what was the glory of man and what is for the glory of God and so instead of as is usually done in this chapter to concentrate on the parable of the prodigal I want to look at all three of them, the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son among the two or three dozen parables that the Lord told the disciples and those who followed him around. Few of them can have dealt with the matter of being saved so clearly as these parables here in chapter 15. And Bishop Ryle says of them, these verses, there's probably no chapter that has done greater good to the souls of men in this particular chapter. To the good shepherd there is no difference between the loss and the finding of one in a hundred or one in ten or one in two. And although it seems as though there is no real input God has in these different parables. It's all the man or the woman lost, or the son was lost and was found. God almost stood idly by while these things happened. But as we, we look at these parables, we have to try and understand that everything that happens is in the providence of God. Now, in the first two there's the sheep and in the lost coin. They were lost by on the one case the carelessness of the, the sheep and wandering away from the flock and the other the carelessness of the householder who lost the coin in the darkness of her own house. But yet in the finding of or the searching of for these lost items there is the input of God not to just dismiss what is lost as it doesn't matter but a desire to find what was lost and after being found to rejoice in the finding of it. For instance the the person the farmer who has a hundred sheep he could have, might have said well I've got 99 others, forget the one that's lost and we'll just carry on with the 99 that are there. But no he goes out, he leaves the 99 and goes out and seeks the one that was lost until he finds it and then comes back rejoicing. And the Lord says, I tell you, there is joy in heaven over one sin sinner that repents. And just as I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The same applies to the woman. She might have said, might have lost one, but there's still another nine. But no, as I said, she searches in the darkness of the house until she finds what was lost. And when she finds it, she rejoices. And again, with the son, there was, Father might have said, well, there's two sons. One's gone away. Well, I still have the other one. We'll just carry on. But no, that's not the case. In every case of these parables, God's sovereign providence is at work, bringing about Especially in the last parable, bringing about the return of the son back uh, to his father. In each case, in each of these parables, there's joy in finding that which was lost. As joy there is in heaven over one sinner who repents. The parables also speak of our own condition in this world. A miserable condition apart from God. In each case, what was lost was valuable to God. In the case of the, the farmer and the woman and the father, it is God identifying himself with these three narratives. And he's placing himself in that situation where he is the one who rejoices. What was lost? was valuable. And he does everything he can in his power, everything possible, by his providence, and by the way he brings incidents into our lives, that we would turn back to him. He hedges up our ways. He brings us back to him so that we might at last find him. But he brings that to pass by his own sovereign will. In Isaiah 53, God compares sinners to lost sheep. We all, like lost sheep, have gone astray. We, every one of us has gone our own way. But as Isaiah tells us, even when we were lost, the Lord was led as a lamb to the slaughter to find us and to restore us. He is the one who goes to the cross. He is the one who gives his life for the ransom, for you and for me. So when we are lost, we are still valuable to God. God does not want any of us to perish, but all of us to come to faith and repentance in him and so find that eternal life so that there might be joy in heaven. Over sinners who are repenting. Each of the parables here in chapter 15 speak of the shepherd, the woman, and the father representing God as being fully committed to your salvation and to mine. The Father plans it, the Son achieves it by his work on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies it to us individually. And that's, he does that by effectual calling. As you know, it's the Father's plan of salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It is God the Father who has the plan of salvation in his own mind and in his own desire to save the children of men. It is the Son whose desire has always been towards the children of men who comes and gives his life for you and for me. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes from the Father and the Son and works in us that we might be brought to a saving knowledge. It is the power of the Holy Spirit who works in us by effectual calling. You know again your catechism, the a calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby he convinces us of our sin and misery, as he did to the prodigal in the far country, where he illuminates our mind in the knowledge of Christ, as he did to the prodigal, giving him an understanding of the Father's love and concern for him, even though he was still far, far away. And enabling him to embrace Jesus Christ. The whole aspect of being brought back to God is the work of the triune God. The father planning it. The son working, achieving it. And the Holy Spirit working in you and me. Applying it. So that we might be brought to a saving knowledge. It is nothing of us. It is all of God. And praise and glory to his name. That he so does it. And so ultimately that. Is our only hope. Not that we have to do something which would be impossible but that he has already done it most other religions talk about this do and you shall live whereas the Holy Spirit says it has been done come and live by the one who has achieved your life for you And so, in Luke, the Lord says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. What he says, he shall do. But there is still something incumbent upon us. There always is in the work of salvation. In the same way, as we're told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, if you do not consciously believe. I know the work of bringing us to believe is the work of the Holy Spirit, but the decision, the conscious act of believing is ours. And so also in in the seeking of salvation, before we come to that position, uh, there is this aspect of asking and knocking and opening the door. We have To engage in that work. It is something that we don't act in a passive way. We have to be active in our own part, in response to what God has worked in us. We have to respond uh, to that work that he has brought to bear upon us. What these parables reveal to us is God sorrowing over that which he has lost. It's seeking for it finding it and then rejoicing. Each one of us who have been brought to a saving knowledge of Christ, each one of us who have been saved has been sought and found by God. It's not something we worked up in ourselves, engendered perhaps by the church we belong to or the family that we were born into. It's because of what God who worked in us. And so it doesn't matter what our past lives might have been what sins we might have committed God wants us for himself and as you read there in Isaiah 55 let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord he will have compassion on him and he will abundantly pardon so That is the work of salvation, of restoration that God works in us. So what is the nature of the change, of the salvation that God effects in us as he brings us to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Although we've just seen it's God who seeks us, it's the God who changes us, or as I said in the morning, it's the God who who changes the, the, the hardness of our heart to a fleshly heart. It's never without the saving grace of repentance unto life. What is required of us that we might escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin? Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, and a diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ reveals to us the benefits of salvation. Uh, the, the methods of, of revealing to us that salvation is by the reading of scripture, uh, by prayer, by attendance on the means of grace, by hearing sermons, by engaging in fellowship, and all these different aspects of, of spiritual fellowship. We are brought to a greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but there is also the, the other aspects of Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. Faith in Jesus Christ is receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation. We don't look to ourselves. We don't remember what we have done or what what we might be planning to do. It's what he has done, receiving and resting upon him alone. All the glory is his. It always will be and none will pertain to ourselves. It will only be to the glory of Christ and to the glory of God. And repentance unto life, as I said, is, is turning away from sin and uncleanness and turning uh, towards God and endeavouring after that new obedience we were talking about this morning. Whenever uh, we read the parable of the prodigal, we always seem to think of the, the father looking helplessly from his house, going to the nearest hill and looking for his son coming home when he chooses to come home. And we imagine in the same way that represents God not being able to do anything to save him and bring him back home. He's the one who rebelled. He's the one who wasted the substance with righteous living. He's the one who's fallen into bondage and sin. And the father seems to be helpless to do anything about it. He longs for his son but he doesn't go out to seek for him. Doesn't try to find him. And it's all down to the son's will when he says, I will go. But that's to totally misunderstand what salvation is all about. It's not when we decide. It's not that God stands by helplessly. And when we've come, when we've lost our youth perhaps, when we fall on hard times or... Oh, when something could make it more beneficial for us to be in the kingdom, and we search God's kingdom, and He gladly gladly receives us. That's not how it works. God is not waiting patiently. God is always active in the work of salvation. Before we can work, God must work in us. Before we find a desire to come back to God. God must implant that desire in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we sometimes we say with people, oh, the Spirit is striving with that particular man or woman. Because there's a change in that person. They're attending on the means of grace. They're reading their Bible. They, they want to hear, they want to talk about the Scriptures. And so that's because, not because something has happened to them and there's, there's been some sort of hard times in their lives, although providentially that might be a case. It is God who perhaps brings about those hard times and implants in that person's desire a need to know God and to find God, both for time and for eternity. God must work in us the willing and the doing. Paul in his letter to the Philippians talks about this aspect of working out your salvation. We can only work out the salvation that God has worked into us. Work out the salvation that God has implanted in you. Work out that which God has revealed to you. And then you will be in the right way. When God finds us, by putting his Holy Spirit in us, we come to our senses. Sometimes it might take a long time. But if the Spirit is striving with us, that work will begin and it will grow and will eventually bear fruit. We will come to our senses, repent of our sins and begin to seek God. That is the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation is instituted by God. This is all of God. The power is God. He sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us and the Holy Spirit brings us alive you know the the idea of a corpse can't do anything to help itself it has to be alive and and so we who were born dead in trespasses and sins have to be made alive we were dead and we were made alive we have been saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves it is impossible for us to do it for ourselves it must be of god it must be the power of God working in us and restoring us and, and bringing us life, giving us breath, giving us a spirit to know God, a desire to know God and to, and to find him in this life. And so we, that brings us to know the misery that this life brings us to because in the natural heart we're totally blind to it we've all seen uh, those around us who who run on in sin who are unconcerned about spiritual matters and are totally blind to the outcome of such lives and such pursuits the first thing we come to know is the misery that sin brings us as the holy spirit begins that work in us imagining ourselves to be happy when we're really totally miserable and dejected God has said to us the wages of sin is death but the devil says you won't die In the same way as he tempted Adam in the garden he works that same lie in all of us it doesn't matter how you live you can put it off to another time You can leave it till you're older. You can leave it until your strength is failing. And when when life has been lived, when you've enjoyed all the juices of this life, you can then turn to God and he will accept you. We all know tomorrow is not promised. We all know of those who suddenly receive disturbing news about their health. We all know of those who uh, uh, die in a tragic accident. We all know, perhaps, even of of those who are getting older, who perhaps even just die in their sleep. And yet, we carry on regardless. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is reveals to us our sin and our misery. And removes the power of the lie that the devil has implanted in us. And that's obviously what happened to the prodigal. When he fell on hard times he imagined for a time that things would turn around. That his friends would stand by him and they would help him out when the things got bad. But they didn't. It's only when he was starving and near to death. It's only when he was without hope. Without friends. Without a future. That he turns to God. The absolute misery and the state in which he finds himself eventually brings him to his senses. That, that doesn't happen. That's God's providence for him. That's God working in him that providence which makes him think of his, his house. In the same way he does that with us in perhaps different circumstances in which we might find ourselves. And secondly, in coming to his senses, there came an honest evaluation of his sin very often we can go on in sin and think it insignificant though it matters very little and again your catechism tells you every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come and so the second thing the Holy Spirit does it brings us to a realization of the seriousness of the sin uh, that we are committing against God. And in the story of the prodigal, he comes to his senses and he says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. He didn't try and make excuses. He didn't try and blame somebody else. Remember in the garden, Adam, the first person he thought of was Eve, the woman, it's the woman whom you gave me. First person, Eve does, no, it's the serpent who beguiled me. And so it's always someone else. It wasn't a me. But here's the young man saying, it was me. It was my sin. I sinned against heaven and in your sight. David, in his Psalms, against thee, thee only have I sinned in thy sight down this hill. As he speaks about his, his sin with Bathsheba. And so there's always this aspect of being brought to realisation. In David's case, the input there was by Nathan the prophet and the working of the Spirit of God. And so here also in the prodigal, it's the Spirit of God working in him, revealing to him the seriousness of his sin, and that it was about time he turned away from it, and giving him this knowledge of his sin and how he was sinning against his father. And in the same way sinning against God. And finally, he confesses his sin and turns from them immediately and makes to return home to his father. That again is what the Catechism on Repentance tells us. He sees, has an apprehension, understanding, a deep understanding of the mercy of his father, of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Do we realize the mercy of God in Christ as he gives up his only son to die for you and for me? whom The father who makes his son a curse, who bruises him, who puts him to grief for you and for me. He does that so that we might not be lost, but that we might be saved. That's, that's the crux of the whole Understanding the text, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his back to smiting, he gave him to the cross, he gave him to the curse. He gave him to the outer darkness where the son has to cry, my God, my God, why? That's all for us. Beaten with our stripes. And so finally he confesses his sins and turning from them immediately makes to return to his father. Thinking about his sins didn't save him. Thinking that he was a sinner, thinking that, that his life was wrong and he was going to turn over a new leaf was not going to save him. Confession of that sin was, was not going to save him. What good would be confessing to himself in that far country, in the pigsty? Yes, he realized he was wrong, that he was wrong to his father, and he sinned against his father. No, he had to get up. He had to do something. As I was saying, there's a, a, a responsibility placed upon us to actually do something. And what the son had to do was to get up, place one foot in front of the other, and go home. To go home to the father who is waiting for him. In the same way God waits for us. He waits for us to call upon him. He waits for us to go home to him. He does not want any of us to perish. And so, thinking about it didn't save him. Confessing it to himself didn't save him. He needed to go home. There's one other tragic element to this chapter. And that's the elder brother. The outcome of the prodigal returning home to his father resulted in a great feast of celebration. Bring on the best robe, father's own robe was the best robe. Put on him the ring of sonship, like the seal of God's acknowledgement, the seal of the father's love to him that he was son, and killed the fattened calf, almost an idea of the, of the great heavenly feast that there will be. But there was just one person in the whole company who wasn't celebrating. He was working in the field as he's always done. A dutiful son. That's what he did. And that's where he went out to work. And he arrived home to find music and dancing And rejoicing. And when he found out what was happening, he was absolutely furious, incandescent with rage. Couldn't understand what his father was thinking of. And his father comes out to him. He is furious with his father. All these years, he said, I've served you. Never did you give me even a kid to celebrate with, with, with my friends. And we can, we can almost sympathize with, with the elder brother. He's been there at home. But what the story wants to tell us about is a son who's doing it, not out of love for his father, because he'd never have spoken to his father in this way if he'd loved him. He was doing it out of what he could get out of the situation in the same way as someone who's unconverted does things that they might perhaps be able to, to bring their plus side before God at any terms of judgment. And that's what happened to the elder brother. He's saying all these things. That never once did you reward me. And now the son of yours comes. You won't even admit him as his own brother. The son of yours came home. The one who's devoured your property with prostitutes, and you've killed the fattened calf for him. This son of yours, who has wasted your property, who was a drunkard, who slept with prostitutes, all these things which dishonor your name, and yet you still love him. Love him even more than you love me. And the father says, no. I love you both. But you've always been here with me, and all that I have is yours. I said it's easy to sympathize with the elder brother that perhaps we are so like him, serving our time, obeying, and then expecting to receive some sort of reward for our faithfulness. We imagine we're not like the prodigal, but we are faithful and obedient. No, but we're not. Or if we are, we've the spirit of the hired servant expecting a reward and not out of love toward God. The problem for the elder brother was that he had been perfectly content for the son to be lost and the money and the property to be brought home. He was angry because he'd long since given up on him, calling even his brother the son of yours. Now, the Lord, as I said, spoke uh, this parable and the other ones as well to the scribes and Pharisees who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on others. How's it with us? Do we see ourselves in the same light as the prodigal? That we are guilty of sinning against God, sinning against light, of not entering into a relationship with Him, in spite of all the promptings of the Spirit, in spite of all the sermons we've heard down through the years? Do we still stay where we are? We're going to do something about it sometime in the future? when we've achieved our latest plan. Remember what God said to the the foolish farmer. This night your soul shall be required of you. May it be that in Providence none of us will be in the situation tonight. But may it also be that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day we will call anew upon our God and our Heavenly Father. Let us then conclude our worship singing to God's praise in Psalm 50. 50th Psalm on page 66. The Lord, the Mighty One, is God alone. He speaks and summons all the earth abroad. From rising of the sun to where it sets, from heaven, from Zion's perfect beauty shines, O God. We sing down to the end of verse Mark 7 again, four stanzas to God's praise.
1: sacrifice a pledge to thee the heavens will be.
0: Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit one God, rest on you and abide in you now and always.